You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start with a story that's just been kind of rolling around in my mind. I have a few of those stories that kind of settle up in here. In fact, Peyton Marley and me have been rehashing the Adnan Syed case lately. You guys, it's just in our genetics. That's what we chat about when we talk with each other. And also because, as Peyton says, Adnan Sayed has become her Roman Empire. Well, this crime story, it's one of those for me. I think about it every once in a while. And this crime story I'm going to tell you today, out of South Carolina, well, it had an update back in December, but I was waiting to tell you more, thinking that the investigation was possibly going to heat up again. But so far, there's only been the one update. And I figured today was as good as any time, and I'll share the concept of the case that's been rolling around in the deep recesses of my mind, and maybe it'll start rolling around in your mind too. All right, let's just start from breaking down the timeline. On January 26th of last year, 22-year-old Tyler Doyle and his good friend Christian Holden decided to go duck hunting on a frigid winter day. They loaded up Tyler's 16-foot John boat near the Little River Inlet along the North Carolina-South Carolina border. 
And I meant it when I said it was frigid. The National Weather Service had actually issued a small craft advisory warning for rough sea conditions on that day. According to Christian, Tyler pulled up to the North Jetty and let Christian off the boat so that he could put out the duck decoys. Tyler then pulls out into the water alone, but the engine begins cutting out and failing. When the boat begins taking on water, I'm thinking from possibly smacking into a rock from the turbulent sea that was tossing the sputtering boat around. That's just my guess. Well, Tyler makes several calls at that point. Most of the calls are back and forth with Christian. He's telling Christian that the engine isn't working. At this time, he doesn't seem too worked up. He's just pretty concerned. He and Christian are just troubleshooting what they can do in the bad weather and how they can fix the boat. They also call a boat mechanic that's also a friend named Brandon. And this Brandon, well, he gives some advice to the two about what Tyler might be able to do to get the engine up and running again. As the situation grows more dire, two calls are made to the Coast Guard and two calls to 911. After several minutes, Tyler's sinking boat begins drifting out to sea with a scared Tyler aboard. More 911 calls pour in, except this time one is from Tyler's friend Brandon, remember the boat mechanic, who says Tyler is now really freaking out about how much water the boat is taking on. Brandon says he's concerned about his friend and he's hoping that authorities are taking the emergency seriously. Tyler's aunt Shea Boyd also calls 911 begging for authorities to help her stranded nephew. Now, I'm not clear who let Shay know. I don't know if Tyler called her. I don't know if Brandon called her, but somehow the aunt finds out and she's nervous too. Okay, here's where it gets a little weird. We've got multiple agencies that can respond, but who's the lead agency? The South Carolina Department of Natural Resources is alerted along with North Myrtle Beach Rescue Squad and the Horry County Fire Rescue. And of course, those two calls to the Coast Guard. Now, Christian is telling authorities that at about 4.50 that day, he could still see Tyler. But he says he turned away from Tyler, who was standing on the bow of the boat. Christian says he was trying to flag down another boat. When he finally turned back to check on Tyler, who was quite a distance from him at this point, he said Tyler was gone. Okay, the next part gets even more weird. It's three hours until we see the various agencies attempting to ping Tyler's cell phone. You know, maybe just trying to establish a location for Tyler, but the cell phone has been turned off or it's completely out of battery. And friends and family fear that valuable time has been lost. Well, night falls and no one hears from Tyler or finds him, but they do find his boat. A Horry County Fire Rescue boat reported that only about a foot of the bow was visible above water, and the boat was basically standing on its end. The rescuer said the only reason they even saw the boat was because the gas can that was secured to the boat by a rope was floating nearby. When Seato took the boat to shore, structural issues were discovered, this according to the DNR and specifically according to an investigator named Ronnie Floyd. Now, Tyler's Aunt Shay said that she was concerned the boat had been purposely damaged in some way. She said that she was told that the gas line looked like it had a tear in it. 
She also said that she had been told that there was a hairline fracture on the rewelds on the jack plate under the boat. Okay, I'm just going to try to interpret that here. I'm no boat expert. I'm guessing that it means that the boat had either been repaired or welded on the bottom or the underside, and that the hairline fracture was where the welding was at, and that kind of broke open, and that's how the boat took on water. Well, the next day, so the 26th is when he goes missing, and they find the empty boat. On the next day, the 27th, shrimp boat captain Danny Jewell, well, he gets in touch with the DNR. And he tells them that he's offering to comb the seafloor in the area where Tyler was last known to be. He says he can use his fishing net to see if he can snag anything. Maybe he can snag Tyler's body or some gear that Tyler had or items from the boat. Well, the Department of Natural Resources denies the request, saying his help isn't needed. So Tyler goes missing on the 26th. The help is offered on the 27th, and it isn't until the 30th when DNR decided to call Danny Jewell back. They are now hoping he can bring his net out three days later and drag the inlet. Danny Jewell tells the DNR, it's too late. The sea is unforgiving, and that time was the most important thing in this equation. Danny says anything that would have been in the inlet has now been claimed by the sea. Well, two days after that, as the investigation is slowly rolling along, Tyler's waders, his wallet, and five of the hunting decoys that had been left in the boat, well, they're found off of a beach in North Carolina. Okay, that beach, it's 20 miles north of the Little River area where Tyler and Christian were duck hunting. Okay, this confuses so many. And the rumors in the area, they just start to explode. People just can't see how those items would naturally be found in that area. They are speculating that someone, maybe a member of the family, or maybe Tyler's wife, or maybe someone who was trying to possibly harm Tyler, might have put those items there. Okay, I've given you all of that backstory. Now we need to back up and I need to tell you what was going on during that time. Well, just one day, After Tyler's disappearance, a GoFundMe had been established for Tyler's pregnant wife, Lakeland. Okay, I want you to keep something in mind here. Anyone can start a GoFundMe. If one was started for Lakeland, it doesn't mean it was started with her complete cooperation. And maybe it was. And in this case, it appears her friend started the crowdsource account. So you would deduce that she knew it was going to be started and that at least she wanted it to happen. Well, after the rumors and the speculation started flying, Lakeland asked for the GoFundMe to be shut down. She said she was being harassed online for decisions that had been made by her and Tyler's family. Okay, what are those decisions? What's causing the stir? Well, here's one of them. Lakeland had a gender reveal posted one day after Tyler disappeared. Okay, it seems her friend's possibly put the post up, as far as I can tell. But lots of people had issues with that. Tyler's missing and all of a sudden she's going to put up a gender reveal? Then also a registry was posted for people to buy stuff for the little girl that Lakeland's pregnant with. All right, the social media mafia also had issues with this because they felt it was, 
it was just kind of poor taste to be asking for these things and not really be showing as much worry or interest about your missing hubby. Again, her friends could have built the registry or maybe it was her. We don't know. People do unusual things during grief. All I do know is she isn't owning up to any of it. I'm just here to tell you what's going on in the early stages of Tyler missing. Okay, there's more. People were also frustrated with the fact that initially Christian's name, okay, remember that's Tyler's friend who was with him that day. Well, Christian's name was not released, which made people think something was being covered up. Why not tell who Tyler was with? And online social media users felt the family, they just hadn't reacted quickly enough by filing a missing persons report on the very first day and by treating the situation with maybe a little too much leisure. Well, the information that was released by law enforcement also caused a stir online. Like it just keeps going, you guys. Here's why that information caused a problem. The information that law enforcement released varied depending on who was releasing it. When the items belonging to Tyler were found, the family gave one location of where the items had been discovered. And then the Surf City Police Department in North Carolina gave another location. Okay, remember, we've got multiple agencies involved, and it seemed not all of them were sharing the information equally. Okay, so let's go over all of that again. What we know now. We've got conflicting information from family and various agencies about Tyler's belongings. We've got the part where they're keeping his friend's name hidden. We've got the what some people feel is bizarre behavior by his wife and the not reporting of him as a missing person. Okay, those are just some of the issues being raised by social media users. And then the GoFundMe was shut down. And before it was shut down, it had raised over $30,000. But Lakeland said she just couldn't handle how everyone was sharing their opinions about what could have happened to Tyler. And she was also saying she needed to protect the health of her unborn baby. All right. I've only given you a portion, you guys. There's more. I said there were more issues. Here's the other issues. Tyler, along with his father, had been charged with attempted murder in the previous year. Okay, you guys heard that right. But those charges of attempted murder, well, they were dropped and the record's been expunged. So very little has been available about that charge, but it didn't stop people from speculating about how maybe Tyler was possibly taken out or maybe Tyler might have possibly just disappeared on his own accord. And there's more than that. Remember how Christian's name wasn't released at the beginning? Well, That might have to do with the fact that Tyler's family was skeptical of Christian's story. At first, the family couldn't understand how Christian was dry when they first saw him. His clothes aren't wet. Now the family is saying Christian claimed he had tried to help Tyler. Well, if he had tried to help Tyler, the family's thinking he should be soaking wet. Well, the DNR They stated that a rescue boat had approached Christian on that night following the 911 calls. The boat couldn't quite get close enough, so a rescue swimmer from that boat swam out to Christian and handed him a life jacket of some sort. Christian apparently put on that life jacket or the floating device and swam to the rescue boat. At that time, Christian had phoned his girlfriend Hannah 
and she met him at the landing with a change of clothes, so some dry clothes. We've got to remember the water's frigid, the wind is kicking up, both the rescue swimmer and Christian, they're probably chilled to the bone. When his girlfriend arrived, DNR says Christian got out of the ambulance in his boxer shorts and a blanket and went to Hannah's car and changed into the new clothes. DNR also says that Christian refused transport in that ambulance because he was waiting to see if Tyler was going to be found. Okay, so we've got some competing stories there. But that's not all with Christian and the family. They're also skeptical of Christian's missing gun. The family is saying that a relative of Christian's took the gun before it could be examined by the DNR. And that bothers them. They don't understand why that wouldn't just be open information. And then there's more with Christian. The family is also bothered that Christian made the 911 calls and not Tyler. Tyler had a phone. The call logs show that he and Christian were communicating on those phones. They want to know why Tyler didn't just call 911 himself. Now, I'll say that the wind is really howling in the 911 calls that Christian made. So possibly that's why Tyler asked Christian to call because the wind is going to be even worse further out in the water. Or another reason, maybe his phone was close to running out of battery. I'm just trying to offer up an alternative explanation for why Christian made the calls instead of Tyler. Now, I just want to look at it from all angles. That's what we're here to do. Okay, but there's more, you guys. There's more issues. Shay, that's Tyler's aunt. Well, she said she knows that Tyler was wearing a life jacket because the boat always had three jackets located in it. And she told local news outlets that only two life jackets were secured in the boat when it was found. Now, DNR, they're saying it's different. They say that three jackets were found secured in the boat. But Christian is saying that Tyler was wearing a life jacket that day when he last saw him. So again, you guys, just more conflicting information. Now, by February 8th, the DNR publicly commits to continuing the search for Tyler. But they acknowledge that nasty weather has hindered their efforts. They also said another agency was joining the search. What is this, like agency number six? Wings of Hope Search and Rescue, which is a nonprofit group that specializes in an aerial and underwater search, well, they joined the efforts in trying to answer questions about Tyler's disappearance. Three weeks after Tyler disappeared, the DNR issued a statement saying that they have completely ruled out foul play. They assert that the case is being handled as a hunting boating accident. Then finally, on March 2nd, the Horry County Fire Rescue Marine Division releases the 911 calls. And all that does is heat up the online chatter even more. Because now people are saying what the family is saying. Why didn't Tyler call 911? Why just two calls by Christian? Then on March 10th, all agencies, federal, state, and local, well, they conduct the last search of the waters and beaches nearby where Tyler was last seen. And I can only guess, at this point, the family is feeling, uh, you know, abandoned or forgotten, maybe, mostly by the various agents. Some by the various agencies, but mostly by the DNR. And the family takes a bold step, led by Tyler's Aunt Shay. 
They create a profile for Tyler on NamUs. That's the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. Aunt Shay says she and other family members had repeatedly asked the DNR to create the profile, but they hadn't moved on the request. So she did it herself. And here's that, I don't know, that empty part that occurs in most crime stories. It's that time when the, you know, the headlines die down. When people move on to the next crime story, or maybe it's a national event that takes everyone's attention. And during that suffocating silence, Tyler's daughter Paisley is born in April. And you guys, she's healthy and beautiful. All's well. And Lakeland, well, she's moving on with life, but not without criticism. She moves out of the house that her and Tyler shared that was located on Tyler's grandparents' land. And it's unclear if she just decided to change residence or if she was kind of asked to leave because she also has a new man in her life. And the next part is up for debate. Some say this new man is one of Tyler's good friends. Some say it's just a local kid that because of it being a small town, Tyler knew this guy and this guy knew Tyler. Whatever the case, it seems the two were dating on the down low and people went ahead and assigned nefarious reasons for the secret relationship. All right, some family drama begins with Tyler's father and Lakeland. In June, Brian Doyle, that's Tyler's dad, well, he files a lawsuit against Lakeland, claiming she stole three rifles of Tyler's when she moved. Eventually, the rifles are returned to Brian Doyle, and it seems that the suit was dropped. But... The undercurrent of frustration is clearly flowing. It's flowing between Tyler's family and the DNR. And with all the tension, the DNR finally announces it will work with NamUs to add DNA samples from Tyler's parents. This is four months after the profile was created on NamUs by the family. It then takes another month before Brian Doyle's DNA is collected by the DNR. And then it's four more months before anything further happens in the case. And that brings us to the update. On December 7th, SLED joined the case. At least that's when they told the family they had joined the case. DNR claims it happened the month prior, but the family, led by Shay, remember that's Tyler's aunt, well, she tells the Post-Courier that she had to, quote, raise hell to make sure that another agency looked over what had been done by the DNR. She told the Post-Courier that a huge weight had been lifted off her shoulders when she was told SLED had finally joined the investigation. Now, the family has consistently been frustrated with the DNR for not acting quickly enough from the day Tyler goes missing to denying the help from the shrimp boat captain which, by the way, DNR says never happened, and then also the delay in even naming Tyler as a missing person. And a spokesperson from SLED says they are far more equipped to handle a missing person's case. And they didn't hesitate to ask for the public's help in Tyler's case either. A DNR spokesperson said in December that they have received various tips from the public about possible sightings of Tyler Doyle, and that is why they requested the help of SLED so that they can review the file and assist with missing persons inquiries. Okay, you guys, who's right here? So much he said, she said. Is it Shay who claims she had to raise hell? 
Or is it the DNR who is saying they're just trying to do right by Tyler's case? And maybe it's a little bit of both. But I would call into question the delay by the DNR in turning the case over to SLED. If they had possible sightings and family was requesting it to happen, why even wait? So that brings us to the end. We're just going to have to see what happens from here. Are the sightings of Tyler credible? In my opinion, not likely, but guess what? My opinion doesn't matter, and hopefully SLED can confirm or excuse those those sightings. And if you want to see all the phone records, if you want to hear the 911 calls, and if you also want to understand the family's distrust in the investigation, you can visit clear-truth.com. Okay, I'm going to say that again, clear-truth.com. And as far as the family issues, little Paisley needs as many people in her life that love her as possible. I hope that the family can work through their issues and love this little girl from all aspects of her life. And now let's head to Missouri and I'll relay this horrific story about a mother killing her one month old baby. Now the debate will rage after the story though, because was the killing accidental or purposeful? All right, earlier this week, 26-year-old Mariah Thomas was putting her one-month-old baby named Zariah down for a nap. But instead of placing the infant in her crib, the mother placed the baby in a hot oven. After some time, someone called 911 reporting that an infant was not breathing. When first responders arrived on scene, they found the infant in melted clothing that was meant for sleeping, and the infant was the deceased little girl, and she was in the car seat that was resting on the floor in the living room. Now, I couldn't find clearly who called 911, but my thoughts are, it's the same witness who explained to first responders that the child had been placed in the oven accidentally. Okay, that's not my word choice. It was the word choice of the witness, and that information was found in the affidavit. Okay, first responders described the scene as gruesome. The mother was arrested and charged with endangering the welfare of a child and also for the death of the child. She is being held in the county jail, and it is unclear if she has yet to be assigned counsel. Now, Sarah Boyles, she's a freelance journalist out of Illinois. She has provided information that she said she spoke with someone who has inside knowledge, and that person stated that Mariah suffers from schizophrenia and postpartum psychosis. All right, whether she does or doesn't, I'm asking you what you think of the case. Remember, I brought you a story two weeks ago of an adult woman killing her boyfriend after the two had smoked weed together, and the woman had a psychosis event from that weed. She stabbed her boyfriend over 100 times, and she is not going to serve jail time for the murder. So do you think the same response can be afforded here for Mariah? Okay, I know the two murders are different, but should she be able to claim postpartum psychosis or schizophrenia or both as the reason for the death, and then the murder gets to be called accidental? So you tell me what you think. I also have another question. Isn't it time that postpartum be given more of a spotlight? Are we medically addressing this issue appropriately? Okay, as you respond to those two questions, I want to say, 
my heart goes out to the first responders of this case. I think Jackson County Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker said it best when she released in a statement the following, we appreciate all first responders who worked on this scene and the prosecutors who went to the scene in order to issue these charges. We acknowledge the gruesome nature of the tragedy and our hearts are weighted by the loss of this precious life. We trust the criminal justice system to respond appropriately to these awful circumstances. I pray their hearts can find peace in what is a monumental ask for them to perform a duty of trying to rescue a child who's been harmed in this horrific way. And we can end with this update. A fugitive who has been accused of killing a Tennessee sheriff's deputy has finally been captured. It was one week ago today that 42-year-old Kevin DeHart allegedly opened fire on two Blount County deputies during a traffic stop. Deputy Greg McCowan was killed, and Deputy Shelby Agers was injured when she was shot in the leg. Law enforcement has indicated that DeHart would not exit his vehicle and that the deputies eventually used a taser on DeHart, but it was ineffective. After being tased, police say DeHart pulled a gun and shot both deputies. For five days, DeHart was on the run until Tuesday, when at around 3.30 p.m., police and SWAT team personnel surrounded a home in Knoxville. Neighbors in the area were quoted as saying that they heard several loud bangs and that law enforcement were surrounding the home with their guns drawn. When SWAT entered the home, it was empty, except for DeHart, who didn't put up a fight and was easily taken into custody. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation credited certain pieces of technology-related evidence that led investigators to DeHart's location. When asked specifically if cell phone evidence was used, the TBI investigator coyly said it helped. Now, DeHart was booked into the Blount County Jail, but has since been transferred to the Loudoun County Jail. Sheriff James Barong said DeHart will likely move back and forth through the two jails as his crimes are handled individually. Now, the sheriff also indicated he will be advocating for the death penalty, but that ultimately that is not his decision and that the district attorney, in conjunction with the slain deputy's family, will make that call. Now, the sheriff also said body cam footage of the shooting will be released soon, but they are guarding the family's grief at this time, and they're going to release the footage at a more appropriate opportunity. Now, DeHart's brother, Marcus, he was also arrested and charged with accessory after the fact for aiding DeHart during the five-day run from the law. And DeHart's girlfriend, Carrie Matthews, well, she was also arrested on similar charges to DeHart's brother. Cell phone activity shows that Carrie and DeHart were in contact during the five days and that she hid that information from law enforcement. Now, Deputy McCowan, who was murdered during the traffic stop, well, he began full-time law enforcement work in 2020. In 2021, he was awarded the Sheriff's Office Life-Saving Commendation, this for his part in saving the life of a man trapped inside a burning vehicle. Now, the Sheriff's Office said he loved riding motorcycles and also restoring vintage cars. I know that I can speak for most of you Rise and Crime listeners. Our hearts go out to the family of the slain deputy. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. You guys, thanks for joining Oh No Media and Rise and Crime. I know you hear it from me all the time. 
I know I say it all the time, but I love that you're part of this journey with me. And if you love what you're hearing, please give a five-star rating and a review. It really does help the podcast grow. And even better, it's free. And please tell a friend if you love the show and they can subscribe and join us and we can grow this community. You can join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there.